You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. So Scott Kane is a man whose life has been threaded by surfing and it just so happens that Joe and I have gotten out of the surf and we've we've had a process. We've had this great conversation with Scott. Scott came about through my brother Lachlan sending an email across from the Port Lincoln Times published back in 2019 and it was called Surfing the Success of Failure and the crux and the nuts and the bolts of, of that article was just a beautiful summary of someone's life and the opportunities they've given themselves and been given and just the way they've um, traversed life's strange paths, creeks, crevices and, and mountaintops. Yeah, and I mean, Scott's kind of, it was it was great to me to kind of, one, learn much more about kind of, I guess, you know, being involved in kind of um, First Nations um, title and how that's all actually come through, in particular Scott's, um, I guess, experience kind of being involved in the first actual kind of claim um, for uh, First Person's uh, native title uh, for the Spinifex people um, out in um, South Australia and Western Australia. So it was kind of a really incredible uh, to hear that. But I think, you know, as, as Pat, as you said, is that the, the most interesting thing to me listening to to Scott is just his perspective, which is actually one of that he's kept learning throughout his life. And, you know, my favorite part of it was kind of putting to him, like, where is this all actually heading? And him coming coming straight back and really talking about, well, it depends on the actual time horizon that you actually look at that. So I think he's got a great take. It's an incredible listen. I absolutely loved loved this chat. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for people to actually have a chance to listen to it. Scott Kane. Well, I always wonder where the surfing sort of made my life or ruined it, yeah? But I think the former. But I, I, I mean, any surfer that might be listening to this would appreciate the fact that you, you spend most of your life trying to work out ways to go surfing. True. And it so happened that in my kind of... And it was a kind of delinquent space when you were in, in the 60s surfing uh, because surf bums were kind of like undesirable objects. And... and, and so essentially, what you did was look for a job. Any of you know, and when you're young, you're trying to find a job anyway that would let you go surf. So in my <laughs> present circumstances now, where I sit in a very remote, beautiful part of Port Lincoln, I have a job where I can um, still go surfing. Sort of 54 years later. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. And um, and how are things in Port Lincoln at the minute? Well, yeah. Well, in the in the context of COVID, Port Lincoln is probably the, one of the nicest places to be on Earth because it's a very you know, isolated, little forgotten part of Australia, and 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 obviously there's been no tr- tracing of it and it's, it's a rural community it's a really wealthy little community with a strong fishing and and farming sector and there's not many people and it's got a huge extensive coastline where it's one of those places few places on earth where from a service perspective you can sit in the water and surf and not see a single house so it's, it's remote and, yeah beautiful yeah, but oddly i mean the the, the the unique thing about port lincoln is it's, it's actually an 800 kilometer drive from adelaide but because it's on the other side of a, a, a large bay, it's only a half-hour flight. So you can live in one of the remote places on Earth, which is a you know, wonderfully wealthy little city on a very clear harbour, and be at work in an hour. 
Don't tell it too hard. There might be a few people going oh, there yeah, soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really cold and miserable yeah. in the winter. <laughs> Especially there, us Victorians listening here. Aren't there like <laughs> loads of aren't there loads of sharks everywhere, Scott? From what yeah, I understand, sharks yeah, sharks everywhere. everywhere. So like, I didn't even think you could paddle out there without seeing a great white. Like, I thought you it was know, actually look, impossible. I've for fifty odd years, I say, and I have not seen a shark in my whole life. But touch wood, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm touching it for you as we I speak. I kind of feel that every time I've seen a dolphin, which is thousands of times, I, you know, every time a, a pot of dolphins, at least, I've probably also had a shark swim underneath me. But I don't think sharks eat people as much as we fear they might. No, uh, no, it's always that um, that kind of that little moment, isn't it, in your stomach when you see like something break the water, and you're just like, oh, what is that? Yeah, you what do sort that? of jump a bit even still yeah but you kind of if you really if you surf in remote places you, you, you it's one of those things you totally accept in the same way that you hop in a car and drive to work that's yeah. much more dangerous activity i would think but yeah for sure you're much more likely risk, to hit yeah. a big kangaroo first thing in the morning than you are yeah. to see a shark that's actually true because i've hit two or three of those you know? <laughs> yeah good, good, now for some context scott what are you doing out in or right near port lincoln um other than surfing so like you mean from a well, work I've perspective. Got a family and, yeah, family, and, and, and then also, uh, what are, what else drew you out there? Where are you, where are you flying, and what are you flying for this afternoon? Oh well, so today I'm going over for what's called an experts conference between expert other expert anthropologists in relation to an overlapping native title claim. And people are familiar, I guess, with the concept of native title and the recognition of traditional rights that Aboriginal people had before sovereignty, which if they, you know, if, if they still forceful um based on laws and traditions that were based from before white people came the, the courts in australia recognize those rights and and um uh, but often there's conflict over areas that those rights relate to so i'm going out for a conference of so-called experts um to to, to try and formalize formalize a, an opinion in relation to a disputed area of land which is not far from port lincoln in fact yeah, wow. And and Scott, I mean, you. Uh, so you're a Tassie boy originally. So if you can kind of take yeah. us back, I guess, to your um, and you've had a fair um, bit of experience and and also kind of history with the with the First Nations um, people here in Australia. Yeah. And yeah. as I understand it, you're also involved in um, setting up the the first curriculum as well. So in terms of actually kind of starting to look at um, a First Nations people uh, based curriculum. Yeah. So can you tell um, our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so look, it again it goes back to surfing, really, and 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 the, and an era. So, I would surf and always in Tasmania, you surf on remote, beautiful coasts, and you're always on the coast. And 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 when you're surfing and you walk on the beaches, there's always in, in Tasmania just mountains of people what people call, call middens, you know, which are old Aboriginal campsites, and they're massive and they're deep and they're very beautiful and they're they're layered and the, the sh you know the the rocks spill out over the sand dunes and the rocks the shells spill out over the sand dunes so it's they're intriguing and just as a young surfer I said when I wasn't surfing I'd just walk on the beaches and look at them and, and I could never work out as even as a 14 year old what what they um what they were who left them behind and when I would, t I would talk to people in Tasmania about them they'd go oh I, we don't know the people here before us and they used to live there so I, as a young an adolescent really intrude into my sort of 18, 19, I guess I just, I used to slightly fantasize, like, who were these people? So I, as an amateur, really, I just started investigating those. And, and in fact, I was so, slightly, I became so obsessed about them. I even wrote as a young man, I was I think, 18 or 19, to the Louvre in France to try and get copies of drawings that the French had made. And, 
first thing. So, so I started to know quite a bit about them. But so, then that was like a sort of side project. I, I just liked it. And, 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 but as I got older, and I, obviously you have to get a job, and I wasn't a particularly bright student, but I, I decided to go become a teacher. And, and this is a brutal thing to say, but I, I chose to do teaching because I knew there was lots of holidays and I could surf and I couldn't think of another profession that would let me surf. In the course of that, that study, I was asked to do a, you know, a, a final research project and, and, I, and I just designed and I taught a, a course in, 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 Tas- in Ta- Aboriginal Tasmanian studies, basically. And that was, that was back in 1974 or five, I think. And, at that point, there was no secondary school courses taught, as far as I know, in Australia on Aboriginal studies. The universities, ANU, had a, had a, you could study uh, archaeology in ANU and a little bit in Sydney, but that was it in the whole country. Like it was, it's not much, people don't learn much about it now, but then it was like an absolutely non-existent sort of element of Australian history. So, but, but I, you know, I did it out of a passion. It just so happened that it was, you know, an early thing to do, you yeah. hmm. And how was that received in Tasmania? Tasmania, to me, um, back in the 70s, would have been very a colonial space still, much like Australia. How was it received? And, well, it and was, was there uh, much um, space for First Nation people to have input in it? No. I mean, this is harsh, but no, we didn't know there were any. I was actually married to one. <laughs> really? No. And you did yeah. Know. Wow. Well, it, just, it wasn't known. And a lot I know now, you know, retrospectively, people sort of i don't know how these things emerge lots of friends at school aboriginal tasmanian aboriginal kids it just wasn't recognized and it was in the it was literally in the in the era i was doing my little kind of white little thing you know michael manson was the first tasmanian voice that um started speaking out about aboriginal people being there and still having rights and how they used the land and their memories of that historic experience so so, so that was really early. It was before the Tasmanian Aboriginal Council, Aboriginal Land Council there. And so, so, but, 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 but on the other side, on the sort of school side, people, the kids were fascinated. They had no clue. As people are, you walk around the bush and you can you can see artifacts and you can seashells and, and they have meaning. It's, it was there was lots of interest and there was interest in the Department of Education and it became it sort of became an issue which everyone thought should be taught. But I was, I mean, you know, in my own derelict way, I wasn't so interested in actually becoming a teacher and teaching it. I just wanted to, um, to, 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 to surf and I, and I and pursue it. And, and, and the irony was because I became known as someone who had no much interest or maybe some expertise in knowing what sites were and what they did, I got asked, this is in 1977 and it has, so it's ancient history, really. But I got asked by the state government to go and record an Aboriginal site on the northeast coast of Tasmania in a really pretty co- coast, a place called Anson's Bay, where I can surf. And that, it was a 10 day. I actually got there for 10 days and record this site, which is a pleasure for me to do. But also they paid me $200 a day. So in 1977, that was just like an unbelievable amount of money. Yeah, wow. and, and, and I had $2,000 and sat on the coast and surfed and worked on my passion. Like, <laughs> so then I thought... This is unbelievable. I wonder if I could do this for a job. And in a sense, that's by chance, really, and, you know, lucky, fortunate encounters, that became my job. And that's kind of what I still do. 
And so, Scott, so, uh, what did you what did you study, and kind of where where did you study? I mean, kind of take us back to that time. Kind of, I mean, you know, we all have, um, you know, you kind of describing um, Anson's Bay and kind of, you know, this this real kind of space. I think that Tasmania was at that point in time. But yeah. kind of where, like, what was what was life like at that point, and kind of where did you actually um, study, and what did you study? Yeah, well, look, I I think I don't know. Maybe sometimes people get a little lucky break, and and I. I mean, I was genuinely a delinquent kid, and I was, you know, a surf bum, and 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 I didn't achieve well. I was not a really, I mean, I was a terrible student at teachers' college, but but I'd written this thing, right, this little study, and and through someone that knew someone, an academic in Canberra, a, a really famous now dead anthropologist, archaeologist and anthropologist, really called Rhys Jones, was in Tasmania, and he uh, he had read it and asked to meet me. And that, for me, as a, as a, as a just a sort of a, you know, nobody beach kid, was really fr- terrifying. Anyway, anyway, he, he took me out in the bush and went and visited a site which is called Meg's Mitt, had a hand stencil it, which is a rare thing in, in, in Tasmania, Aboriginal art hand stencil. At that time, in fact, it was the only one known. And, and this, this will sound really lame, but he, so it, when we're looking at the site, he asked me, he was sitting up on a rock, and he asked me how. Um, how this is pathetic really how tall i thought the roof was of the cave and i'd never in in my whole life been asked a question and and not only did he ask me the question but he he actually wrote what i said down because i was almost froze so i said oh, i think it's about nine feet i can remember it clearly yeah. he wrote it down and because he was a you know a grand scholar and and he it was had a huge impact on me right it was the first person quite seriously taking serious note of, of something I'd done and he subsequently and I was a little bit I wasn't very good at school because I was a little bit dyslexic and still am and he was carrying a camera case which had on it in that you know you used to have those black sticky things which you'd press a letter into and they kind of the letter would be risen but white yeah it had a, 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 had on the back of the camera ANU ANU prehistory right before white people wrote history that was the department that was called in those days and i read that because i was dyslectic as instead of a new i read it as a new prehistory <laughs> right That's so great yeah yeah i know and, and and he goes and he just looked at me and said you should go to university and and it was that mistake right he also thought i had a kind of quirky mind huh? and and look i it's hard to explain in a way, but I, th- I think ch- children that grew up in the 60s, and I was a bit after the baby boomers, but in that era were seriously affected by their parents' experiences in the war. And in my case, this is in a diversion, yeah? In my case, my father ran away from home at 13, lied about his age, ended up in the Merchant Navy age 14, and in a world war. And he, he was went around the world seven times during that world war. So by the time he came out and left the Navy in his early 20s, He'd been around the world seven times and seen things like, and I think our whole generation could barely conceive. So I, this is a bit of, bit of a detour, but I'll come back to your, your point. Um, I felt as a young man, I had to do something equivalent. So having met Rhys Jones and been told I should go to university, still having no clue about my life, but also having finished my teacher's college, I, um, I took off overseas and traveled extensively and effectively wanted to grow up and do something a bit like my dad important worthwhile and and when i came back i literally went back to i, I found reese jones in canberra i'd actually been at david bowie concert in um in melbourne and the concert finished at midnight and then i got on the night bus at two o'clock and 
drove up to Canberra, slept under the Commonwealth Bridge under the lake there, yeah. and the next morning went into ANU and looked for Reese Jones, right, and, and, and found his room, knocked on his door and said, do you remember me? And he goes, yep. I said, would you help me get into university? He goes, yep. Oh, and, so and he got me into university through the back door, literally, quite literally. Really? I, I, I got in and was allowed, and Professor Mulvaney was the, sort of the father of prehistory. He was the professor at the time, and he, he helped, and, and, they, and, I, and I, I got a day new with, with I, all I had to do was to, I was, I was enrolled in a thing called a master's qualifier, which meant nothing and had no status attached to it. But if I got above 85% for everything, I would be allowed to do a master's. That was the, the condition. And I said, and because, okay, so the links work back well now, because I'd done that one contract, at Anson's Bay for 10 days, I had $2,500 in my pocket, so I could still, I hadn't spent it. I'd put that, I'd actually bought a little block of land in a place called Southport in Tasmania. I sold that for $6,000 and I could go to university. And, and I mean, there's, I don't over explain this, there was one other thing, significant thing which had happened and Gough Whitlam was in power and he'd actually made for the first time, he'd taken uni fees off university. So I could go to university without having to pay fees. Yep. Yeah. So, so I went to university. So the thing that changed me in my youth was, was meeting Reese Jones. Wow. That, that story of you riding a Reese Jones wave is, is amazing. I can, can't help but feel and get an image of you, Scott, just riding that wave of chance. And, and it, I it, it, it's affected ocean. my whole life. And I can't, I mean, I'm 65 now. Can't, I can't emphasize it enough because it took me to university. Because I, I used to always, just the sort of kid I was in Tassie, I'd be one of those kids that would always be asking questions. Like, do you reckon Jesus Christ is real? Like, who was he? My mates would go, like, who cares? You know, like, huh? And I would, I would often think in that ear that I was a little bit, maybe I was nuts. Yeah? But when I went to Canberra, I was surrounded by people who were like that. And it was the biggest thing I could do. That was a huge thing for me. And it changed not my, just me, but my, all my children's lives i mean they they all went on to do interesting and wonderful things simply because of that one opportunity that reese sort of took an interest in some kind of curious country kid you're listening to bau business as unusual the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements organizations and ideas that are shifting the way we think interact and transact your hosts patrick beggs of per production a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. And from that university experience, you've landed into Spinifex territory. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your role in, in playing a massive part or a part in the native title claim um, that resulted in a positive favour in 2000 where yeah. people, listeners might um, recollect some images of court going out to the desert out there and you can see people dressed in very fancy suits proper suits dressed up in the desert and it's a it's a beautiful sort of abstract scene but a very historic one for australia and it was the first major no title claim in australia and richard court having having um taken the federal court federal government sorry to the high court to stop native title 
became the first premier to actually make a native title determination, consented determination. And he still says that um, it's the best thing he ever did in his entire prime, uh, premiership time. So it was a it was a big thing. And look, there's there's a, there is a sort of a complex backstory there as well, which is which goes like this. I I still surfed and so I still knew surfers. And there were other young surfers that I knew that thought, Scott's got a good gig. He goes off and does his work in the desert and earns quite good money and can surf whenever he wants. So I, I quite a number of friends went off to study as a consequence of it. And one of them was, was a very good surfer in Tasmania, a guy called Michael, forget his name now, Michael Moorhead. He, he, he ended up being an apprentice judge to Justice Dean in the High Court. Um, <laughs> for the determination of the Mabo yeah, right. case. and I, But I didn't know that. I, I knew he did something in law. And he used to come and visit me and we'd go surfing all the time and, and he would talk all the time about what are rights and how can there be two systems of rights and, and, and just talk to me about it. And we'd surf and he'd talk, but he was actually trying to get his head around his own role, which I had no clue of until, mm. I, you know, after a period of time I did, I discovered there was this thing called... So I knew about Mabo determination being formed before other people. Mm. And so I went out to Spinifex and said, wow, there's this thing coming about it's been announced by the federal court, which gives all you... And the, the Spinifex people, and, and the same with the Pindaby, in the sort of that Western core of Australia, which is, I say this to people quite often, and, and, and people in the Eastern States, it's hard for them to comprehend really, but once you get sort of, you know, away from New South Wales and and, and, and Victoria and into and sort of the, the, the remoter edges, or the middle edges of South Australia, Australia's black, right? I mean, the, the, there are white people there, but they're trans and they come and go, there's a few in Darwin, there's a few live in, in Alice Springs, it's black. And that whole area is traditional and tribal and remote and wild. And and and, and in the case of the Spinifex people, they they were still living a traditional life in the in the in the, in the um, late 1980s, like having had not any contact with white people. And and the majority of them, the Spinifex people, particularly, got taken out and chased sort of out of the desert, picked up because of the Maralinga bomb tests. So they're really traditional people. And so for me to be working with them and to be able to sort of come out and say, look, you guys. Actually, it was a bit of a conundrum, really, because I was saying to, you know, tribal Aboriginal, you can get your rights to land recognised. And they're going to look, going, looking at me going, like, yeah, we got them, eh? Why? And I said, but the Crown recognised them. They're going, we've never seen the Queen out here digging out rock holes. Like, we don't care. So it was a kind of odd, abstract, arbitrary kind of experience. But nevertheless, they got their, their, their own traditional rights recognised as part of the common law of Australia and, and have exclusive possession of their country, which is a good thing. And that was like twenty years ago now, sort of thing. Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean, it, it is an it's an it is, you know it's, it, it is it a good thing, no doubt. And and part of the um, the process for that, Scott, um, can you talk to us a little bit about the the significance of the Spinifex paintings and actually helping, um, I guess, underpin the native title claim? And actually, you know, and if you can also tell the listeners about what those paintings actually mean inside their culture. Yeah. Okay. This is going to not be the answer you're expecting. Yeah. I had no, ex- <laughs> no expectation. So there we are. No, okay. So, so it's okay. So, so the native title negotiations had gone on for some time, and there was such hostility in the in the, um, in the West Australian exemplifier in the West Australian government at that time that we couldn't, and the advisors couldn't, and no one in Parliament or in the caucus could even use the word native title. Yeah. So can you imagine that? I mean, Richard wow. would not allow it to be even spoken. Yeah. 
so he, but he, so he, he, he changed and, 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 and that changes through him actually meeting the Aboriginal people and so he's the one to go and meet him. And this has nothing to do with your question, but I tell you, this is such a wonderful story. And because um, so we went up with all these twelve men to meet Richard Court, and the, and I don't know if you can visualise that, but so Richard Court is in this large room on his own, a big table, and there's about twelve of us come in, and there's me and there's a guy called Cordy Invert who speaks the language very well, and 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 you might wonder what Richard Court would say, or and, and all he did was ask about their kids. So do you guys got any family? And then one old, really old, remarkable old man said in language to him, oh, I've got a foster child, really, an adopted son, and he's driving me nuts. And um, Richard Court also has a foster child, a original foster child, which no one knew. And so they started talking, and that was our negotiation. And from that point on, things changed, right? Yeah, so, right. okay, so, yeah, and, and they still talk about him as, they called him Waddy Wara, long man. I don't really get that he was, at that time, he was a premier of, of the state. He was just, they liked him. Yeah. And, and that changed. It was a human interaction talking about kids, for goodness sake. So, anyway, so I, so then we, we moved, progressed forward reasonably quickly and got the consent determination. Now, in the process of doing that, a, 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 a girl called Louise Allerton was working out in the community and she was starting encouraging the people to paint. And, 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 and they decided that they would do 10 paintings as gifts to him, to the state, huh? and 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 that also happened to to be a, a really rich opportunity to, to actually expose their art to the to the outside world. So the paintings were done in a sort of collaboratory sense. They weren't the foundation for the name title. They were just the paintings of our country as a present, which the, the state still has this extraordinary pack of 10 paintings, including a painting by the men, a huge painting of their country as they see it mythologically, and a painting by the women of their country as they see it. And then all those people, are, except for one, have passed away now. So they're really extraordinary, precious paintings, but they were they were not so much the fulcrum of the of the, of the, of the, of the drove native title so much as an, an elaboration of it when it was actually determined, in a sense, agreed to. Mm -hmm. And of course, spin effects people paintings now, they're, they're, they're they're, they're exceptional paintings. They, it was a really strange bush crew that never painted before. They just painted. And, and, and there's, it's a sort of corny cliche, but they really are close to country. And there is absolutely a relationship between how pe close people are to country in terms of their physical connection and their religious knowledge of it and the art they produce. And they just produce beautiful paintings. Gorgeous. Um, so that was a long answer. No, no, it's a, it is really, really interesting. <laughs> it's a good answer, Scott, and an honest one. And on theme with uh, how this conversation is going, I was wanted to go back to that moment where you were talking about how the Spinifex crew was saying how strange it is for a queen that we haven't seen to give us sovereignty or native title of, of land that we've existed on for as long as our memory and stories carry us through. Um, and just your role in that, I suppose, being a bridge between the two cultures in a way, it sounds like you got the trust of the people of Spinifex country and, and also the ears of the powers that be. And then you've written a book in Pilba. How do you... Pilla. Pilla means Spinifex and Nuru, Pilla Nuru. It means from Spinifex. Beautiful. Yeah. And then, so you've written that book, but some of the criticism that you have received from that is that some of the artists or some of the community voice wasn't represented in that. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, that was curious. Well, I can only come in. It was, I, so, so I say, yeah, there's, that's a really interesting question. 
because it's always slightly troubled me. And um, and and so I wrote. Well, I didn't know what to like. This was the first name title claim, and I didn't know. None of us knew what to do. Yeah, we're talking about it, but so how do we do it? And I went into what was then the No Title Tribunal and literally knocked on their door. And um, so it's like, when you're doing a final title claim, how do we do it? Yeah. And there was only, at that point, only eight people in the tribunal. I mean, there's hundreds now. It's a massive thing. But, and they said, we don't really know either. And, and so I thought, well, I'll write a report. Yeah, because I'll explain to the government. Then I just, and, and I want to write down the, the story of these people anyway. And... Um, and I gave that to the government as a sort of the evidence. And these are the people that come from this country, and this is why they're connected to it, and this is how they're connected to it. I thought that would be useful in the process. And the government, weirdly, thought it was a terrific report, and they sent it to a publisher. They thought this should be published. So I didn't really write a book as such. I just went to the publisher, and the publisher rang me and said, well, can we publish that report? And I go, yeah. yeah. And then can we put some of the photos of paintings in it? Yeah, of course you can. I don't care. So I got it. It was a free book, yeah. And then I happened to have a friend who worked in the in, in, in City Morning Herald that I'd met on the coast, and, and he said, oh, that's come out as a book. I can get a friend of mine to review it, who reviewed it, and which is the review you're talking about. And it was kind of a mean review. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it was unfair review because the voice, it was all the voice of, of mm-hmm. Spinifex people. And, 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 and since there's someone online, clearly you've read it. The, um, uh, and, of course, now the book's sold out. You can't get it anymore. And if you try to get a copy, it's one and a half thousand American dollars on, on Amazon. So yeah. it, 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 outs, it, it outlasted that singular review. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Scott, if you had any copies later around the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I, a lot of people ask me. Uh, and I don't. Hey, I never took it. Because it was, I didn't. I mean, the irony for me is, and I'm sort of reflecting on it with a little bit of pleasure idol is I'm thinking about it now, because I was fairly dyslexic and not very good at school, and you asked something about my role. My role's always been just like a, a filter. I, I, you know, I like the people and I like the work, and, and, and if I can use whatever skills I have to sort of explain their story, whether it's just a simple heritage assessment or whatever, I, I, I'm, that's good, good enough for me. I, I, I'm really content with that. And, and it just so happens I could, which is odd for me because I'm not, and I didn't really read a book till I was in my early 20s, but I, you know, but I obviously had a sort of scholarly academic kind of mind, but I, I, I sort of can write all right, which is a, I never did English at school. I don't know what a preposition is and I don't understand grammar, but I can tell when I've written a nice sentence. It's a very odd thing. It's a bit like music, playing music. So I can, my job is I can write all right. I can, I can kind of explain things weirdly in a, in a sort of clear manner. I think that's my contribution. Beautiful, which beautiful. It's not really dumbing it down, but I just, I'm, I'm mindful when I write those because you're writing them all the time. And the, if it goes bad, it ends up in the federal court or like this afternoon, I'll be in dispute with other experts about our views. But, but, but if you, we, they're complicated things and, and they are granting very powerful rights to people over very large areas of country, which in Australia we do through discussion and consultation which is a remarkable thing we don't we don't fight and there's no conflict in it and it is sorted out it, it's a it's a curious characteristic of australia i think that we sort of get things right in a weird way and so my my i would always imagine when i'm writing these complicated cultural histories of people's kinship and religious relationships to land and concepts that people are the white people aren't very familiar with i always imagine that i'm writing for a for an, an educated, intelligent public servant who just doesn't know, has never been out there. So I sort of write mindful of an intelligent reader who's interested but unaware. And that's 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 what I, my job, really. 
Great yeah, stuff. Trying to explain things. And um, and Scott, last last question is: I mean, where where is yeah. this all heading from a you know in terms of kind of from a from, particularly from a native title um, perspective? I mean, you've you've um, you've touched on, for example, the, you know that Australia tends to um, through effort really kind of get get things right in the course of history. But when yeah. you look kind of twenty years out, I mean, what, where do you think kind of native title is actually heading? And as well as our understanding of, I think the connection between um, First Nations people as well as the actual country, and you know, all right, look, I'll go. Of answers. Yeah, please. I mean, I've always taken the view and that I don't get involved unless someone rings me. That's why I live remote. I'm not associated with any institutions. I wasn't at you for a while, but I left. I left back, quite literally in the 1980s, when Aboriginal people started arriving and saying, our cultural heritage just got nothing to do with you. White people are like, going, yeah, they're right there. And then I left. I thought, well, that's fine, you know. And... and and I sort of still hold that view. So I sit here quietly, and if people ring and say, can I help with stuff? I go, yeah, sure. But and then I do it on my terms. But I, so I don't really crystal ball gaze. I, I, don't, re, I don't really know, yeah? But, 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 but what I do know, when things are presented to me, I can, I can formulate a, a solution. So that's part of my answer. I don't really know. But I also think people, and it's another part of the answer, is in the, in the broader world, always expect and always have an answer. Like the worst thing you can do in my job is get into a taxi and say you work in Aboriginal Affairs because the, there's a the cliched taxi driver, uh, not all the same, but it's always got a view about what they should do. They should work harder or they should, you know, shouldn't drink so much. And so every, or, or they should be given, whatever. There's, everyone has a view about it, but, but the, it's only the Aboriginal people actually that have the experience. So, so I don't really project a view other than re, re, reflect it on if I'm told it. So... And people want to see change and improvement in Aboriginal affairs according to their own criteria quickly, but it's but it's not quick. But in, I've lived long enough now to see a huge change. So it's, a, it's kind of like this is my really bad analogy, which I apologise for, but it's, it's kind of like watching the hands of a clock. If you just sit there and look at them, they just don't move. But then when you you get engaged in something else like this interview, suddenly the time's flown. Yeah, and lots change. That so the future is that you know an improvement in in in, in people's you know, social people power is is the, the primary requirement. And obviously, there's education and there's health needs and so practical circumstances. There's practical things that are changing and will change, but they change slowly. There's generational influences and the the, the in, impact of traditional relationships between people through kinship and. And, and, and gender and age are more powerful in a transient than sort of quick three yearly policy changes can make. So, so the projection is, you know, continued incremental improvement, but slow mm. you know, and tortuous. So there's, there's no easy solution. I mean, the notion of closing the gap is a difficult one because the gap that gets defined by a lot of, uh, I mean, I'm not like really expert in that political sphere, but the, I know the people themselves are often much happier and much more content within their lives than the externalization of those images appears. Mm. And so I, I, my, my, I, 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 I don't really, I don't want to overuse the notion of an Aboriginal voice, but the, the Aboriginal voice is a regional voice. I mean, the view of the Spinifex people is different from the Yolnus, different to the Tasmanians, and there's that package which needs to be understood at a grassroots level, really. That's, that's probably the space that I think change is more likely to occur slowly and, 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 and incrementally, but nevertheless ongoing, yeah? which is a really lame answer. But it's it, not a lame answer at all, Scott. That's, that's, yeah. uh, I think that's a really honest and, and beautiful answer and a, and a real answer. 
um, and an answer that comes from your perspective and your lived experience. Um, yeah. And I want to say thank you so much for giving us your time today and chatting to us um, and slowly waking up with that cup of tea. I hope you're well and truly waking up. <laughs> it's actually half drunk. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad, is it? Not bad. Yeah. Thank you for listening to BAU Business As Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.